welcome to Sermon Seasonings, the podcast of Christchurch Glazeville, where we explore some of the interesting and thought-provoking parts of the passage that we didn't get to delve into on Sunday. I'm David Mears. And I'm Mandy Curley. Yesterday, we looked at chapters 20 to 22 of 1 Samuel. If you'd like to re-listen to Sunday's sermon, look out for the Sunday Sermons podcast in the same place that you find Sermon Seasonings. So what did we see yesterday? Well, yesterday we saw that although David had done nothing to deserve Saul's hatred, David was forced to flee. He, like Jesus, was truly hated without a reason and had no place to lay his head. His desperation leads him in his flawed way to deceive and lie to others while he sought refuge amongst Israel's enemies. Surrounded by outcasts, Those that fearfully showed him any kindness are brutally murdered and those that don't betray him are intimidated. The experience of this relentless and malicious bullying must have been terrifying and distressing. This animosity that comes to the Lord's anointed comes from the king like the nations. Dave, it was fantastic to stop and look carefully at God's word. Tell us, what struck you as you prepared? Oh, a lot of things. I think um, one of the things that really hit home to me is, is I mean, as you were just reading that over, I was thinking it, it is quite a, um, it's quite a, it was a moving passage of scripture. When you do put yourself into David's shoes, you just think, man, that would have been, that would have been horrible. And, uh, and it made me think that sometimes I think I've been guilty in the past of, of, of thinking that, uh, of splitting apart the servant theme and the Messiah theme that you get in the Old Testament, sort of thinking that it's the genius of the New Testament that suddenly you see that these two different figures that you read about in the Old Testament get woven together in the one person in Christ in the New Testament, and isn't that amazing? Um, but I think as, as I've been looking more closely at David and, his, and, and what happened to him, you realise that, that that's a completely false separation, that, that right from the very beginning, the pathway of God's king from the very first king of God's choosing was a pathway that led through persecution, suffering and opposition from the world. We didn't need the servant theme to come later to point out that the Messiah must suffer. And, and yet, well, I think one of the other things that, that sh- struck me was that, um, you know, David was innocent and, and certainly we, Jesus was perfect. And, and the pathway, even though it goes through suffering and opposition, it, it was a pathway that had integrity to it. It was a pathway of love for God and neighbour. It was a pathway of, of grace as, as outcasts and sinners um, joined David and, of course, joined Jesus. Um, the path of triumph, as well as 1 Corinthians points out, is the foolish and the weak things of this proud world are used by God to shame the wise and the strong. And, and uh, so even though it's a quite a moving and, and challenging path, it's a majestic path um, that is something to rejoice in. Yeah, it's... I just love the richness of God's word that we see as we stop and look at it. And I guess that's really the reason that we're doing this podcast, Mm. isn't it? So what's uh, something that you saw in the text that we didn't get to look at uh, yesterday, but would be helpful for us to, to understand more of God's word? Yeah, well, the first thing I thought I'd share is actually that there is a, there's a really interesting pattern to, to the structure of these accounts as you look at them if you've got a bible in front of you which you probably aren't because you're going you're walking hope your exercise is fantastic but but what we see is that after 
sometimes we we see the story like we see Jonathan and David and the and the story with the arrow and then we hear about David going to to Nob and then we hear this and we just see them as uh, as you know rightly you read them and you go there's so much in this and this teaches us that and then the next teaches us but sometimes when you actually look at it from a slightly higher elevation you're seeing more of the wood rather than the trees. And I think there's something that is quite interesting in this one. After the story of, of Jonathan and David, we get to the first story of Ahimelech and, and David and his meeting with him. And then we go to Gath. And then we go to the people gathering around David and the Messiah in the cave. And then we go to another one of the nations, Moab. And then we go back to Ahimelech again. Now, um, as a bit of an indicator, the Bible often... Uh, uh, has these big sort of structures that like work in concentric circles or patterns and things like that. And what we have here is, is an A, B, C, B, A sort of pattern. Whenever you get a story that is is split apart, that you go, why do we hear Ahimelech here and then suddenly we get this separation, we get a few stories and then we come back to him. When you see something like that in the Bible, there's often one of these bigger structures at play. So you'll often see it in Mark's Gospel. You'll see, uh, for instance, the story of the, the um, Jairus's daughter with Jesus healing Jairus's daughter. And then you, he goes off to heal Jairus's daughter. Then you get the story of the bleeding woman in the middle. And then you get Jairus's daughter at the end. This is like that. You have Ahimelech story one, nation story one, David in the middle, nation story two, Ahimelech story two. So when we notice that structure, so we notice that there's something going on, but what do we do with that? Um, how do we be good readers of the Bible? Yeah, so what these patterns often do is they'll drive you either to the edges or the middle or both. And so I think what's interesting about this pattern is we've got the, the Ahimelech story is, is as you, if you take it as a whole, is a story of the horrors of King Saul. It is the king who is like the nations and and acts horribly like the nations in this story. Um, and so you see that on the outside. Then you get the next level in, you get the nations themselves. It's almost like the Saul story is further out than the nations. And then right in the middle, which I think is what this drives us to, what do you see? You see the new king. And, and you see him building a new kingdom right in the middle, far away from Saul structurally, that grows to be a, a kingdom of outcasts and those who've recognised that the king like the nations have failed them. And so I, I think there's this, this wonderful separation between the character of Saul and the new kingdom that's growing under the new king of God's choosing in David, separated by these two nation narratives um, on the outside, kind of like a Big Mac. Uh, yes, I was wondering if you were going to tell us about Mark and sandwiches. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, speaking of sandwiches and yes. bread, oh, that was a very bad segue, but <laughs> let's go with it. Uh, you <laughs> promised us yesterday that mm. you'd look a little bit more at sort of what was going on with David eating the bread and what Ahimelech was doing there. Do you want to share with us a bit of what's happening there? Yeah, that that is a... a, a uh, an incident in the Old Testament that Jesus explicitly refers to in the New. And so in order to help us to do that, what I thought is I'd actually read one of the Gospel accounts where he does that. Um, so you can read about it in Matthew, you can read about it in Luke as well. Um, so I'll read to you from Matthew chapter 12. At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, 
Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so it's, it's this um, really interesting uh, story. You'll notice, by the way, that, um, that Jesus mentions David's companions. We know from reading 1 Samuel, the camp companions is, is using, in a sense, citing David's account in our passage we of course know that the companions weren't there but i imagine he might have had some bread left over when he finally got to them <laughs> um but there's two things to think through as we come to this uh first of all we need to think through um in terms of ahimelech and the bread what what's going on in one samuel what's ahimelech actually thinking and then we need to separate that from thinking about what happens uh, later and how Jesus interprets it. So let's deal with the first. Um, the immediate reasons why something's happening back in its setting and the reason why um, in God's providence it actually happened might be different and I think that's what we've got here. The first thing to understand is that what Ahimelech did here was not lawful. The condition that he placed on it as long as the men have kept themselves from women for instance i.e. that the men were ceremonially unclean was not, strictly speaking, relevant in any way. Ahimelech, as a priest of the Lord, was not at liberty to decide which bits of God's law were negotiable and which bits were not. And so, if you're reading the text itself, Ahimelech is persuaded by David's argument that the cause was holy, especially holy is the way David talks about it, and so he makes a judgment call that the exception, in this case for David, is warranted. His reasoning isn't what made it right or wrong and yet as it turns out for reasons he could not appreciate in his time we would only find out a thousand years later it was exactly the right thing to do so why did Ahimelech do it I think if you have a look at it um, 1 Samuel chapter 22 verse 14 when Ahimelech's being dragged before Saul look at what Ahimelech says of David he says, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Was that the first time I inquired of the Lord for him? Of course not. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so he is actually showing that obviously the fact that it was David asking for that bread really mattered to him. Uh, he had an esteem for David even though he didn't know that he was, had been anointed as the new king. Um, and so when, when Jesus refers to the incident, he's teaching that it is for that reason, that it was because Ahimelech recognized whether he knew about it consciously or not, in David, somebody who was worth this and who, in a sense, um, had an authority that was even greater than, I can't give you any bread, um, that that's why he was in fact right. Uh, so David might have made up a story about being on a mission from Saul, but in truth, his flight from Saul to stay alive was actually a holy cause and Ahimelech was right to give him the bread. Okay, so that clarifies why it happens in its context. Yes, yes. But you said there was a second reason that Jesus takes it and actually does something with this story. Tell us about that. Yes. So what Jesus does is he actually says that this, in a sense, that this incident happened under the providence of God 
to actually point to the identity of David and therefore, and, and in a sense, the honour in God's sight of David and eventually, of course, to, to Jesus himself. The God's law doesn't work against, but actually serves the needs and the interests of God's king, that they are not against each other. And so um, the incident, of course, as we read it, was that was the, the picking of the grain. And speaking of picking, that's what the Pharisees were doing. Uh, it was completely lawful for Jesus and the disciples to pick grain, but they, they were arguing about whether it was um, work or not to actually pick little bits of grain and chew them is that, and rub the husks mm-hmm. off them. Is, is that doing it? Um, but Jesus doesn't play their game. In fact, he says, well, let's think about this. And he goes to the Ahimelech incident with David. And he turns their challenge into a point actually about himself. He's saying that just as, in a sense, David was worth that bread, it, it proves that the, the Messiah, in a sense, presides and has an authority over the Sabbath. Um, so that meeting the needs of the Messiah and the needs of his kingdom is more important than the requirements of the tabernacle. And in fact, that that's what those things were always there to serve in the first place. I think it's interesting as well that Jesus says elsewhere that man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And if this is so, when you think about it, how much more is the Sabbath to be at the service of and for the good of the anointed king, the son of man, the, the Lord of all? Um, the other thing I want to point out, though, is is that it makes the Pharisees look extra bad. And I think Jesus is, has, there's a sting in the tail here for the Pharisees because there's an uncomfortable parallel. Jesus rebukes them, notice, for condemning the innocent. He's saying, when you speak against us doing this, you're condemning the innocent. And by citing that incident of Ahimelech, when was the innocent condemned back then? It was when he was condemned by the godless leader of God's people. And I think that there is a stinging rebuke here for the Pharisees saying, you're no different to Saul. Mm, Yeah, that's really, really interesting as we kind of dig in those details and work out what's going on. Uh, Was there anything else that you would have liked us to think about um, that we didn't get to cover? Well, there's a thing that's really interesting to explore here and that's um, quite confronting. Um, But there's... there's important, I, I guess, uh, lesson about life, but also lesson about the world and often the way God operates in here as well. Uh, if I was to ask you the question, why did it? Why did that horrible thing happen to Ahimelech? I'm talking about the bit in chapter 22 when he and the priest and, and all of that were murdered. Um, why did it happen? Well, for a, a number because of reasons. Because of Saul? Because of Saul. Well, the first one you'd have to say is surely it's because of Saul. Saul was the one that said, kill him, kill all the priests of the Lord. Um, and so Ahimelech died because of Saul's evil that he, he exerted through, a, through Doeg, who we're going to talk about in a moment. But that wasn't the only reason that Ahimelech died. Ahimelech died because of David. So yes, he died because of Saul. Saul was the, was the criminal act, right? But it also happened because of David. In fact, David himself um, says later on, that I knew that Doeg was there and would be sure to tell Saul, he says, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. And so David's false story left Ahimelech unprepared. Uh, It may not have made a difference, Um, but Ahimelech walked naively up to Saul and said, said, yes, I helped David, and he got killed for it. And, And David's story contributed to that. 
and also David, as I've said, he admits responsibility because he knew Doeg would report it. And maybe he was thinking, maybe I should have done something about Doeg. Mm. But so there's the responsibility, Saul, and then there's the responsibility. No, actually, it's because of David. And actually, there's another reason why Ahimelech died. And this one's quite confronting. He died because of Eli. Now, the reason he died because of Eli is because he is one of the descendants of Eli. Now, for those who, who um, are new with us and weren't there when we looked at 1 Samuel earlier, let me read to you from the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2 and, and the priest Eli. Eli's sons had been absolutely corrupting the worship of God in the tabernacle. And, and this is what, he's, what God says in judgment to the house of Eli in verses 30 um, to, to 33. He says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. Those who honour me I will honour. Those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although, uh, although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength. And all the descendants, your descendants, will die in the prime of life. Now that is a, a judgment of judgments, which has got to tell you exactly how um, abhorrent and corrupting what Eli and he, what Eli let his sons do. And so um, Ahimelech was actually a descendant of Eli and even is receiving, in a sense, uh, a consequence of Eli's sin back in the day. It's a horrible tragedy, but there's also this element of continuation of God's judgment on the house of Eli. So is the message here that we shouldn't be simplistic in our attribution of, well, it was God's judgment on Saul because of Saul, because we see that it was Saul was responsible, David was responsible, Eli was responsible. And mm. so there are multiple levels of responsibility for what's actually happened in this mm. story. Yeah, because true to life uh, and, and, and life is, is complex and there can be multiple reasons and multiple consequences that echo down the ages. Because do you know what? You could just keep going. You could say there's a fourth cause, a fifth cause. And in fact, you could go all the way back to somebody else who was responsible called Adam. Mm. And the fact that it is we live in a world that is is messed up and where horrible things happen and people do horrible things to others and it's all because and if you trace it all the way back because we're all descendants of adam and we have all rebelled against god and we don't love with our neighbors ourselves and we seek our own interests mm. yeah it's fascinating as we actually look carefully at the scriptures the way that we see those connections and actually are better able to understand what's mm. going on in god's word have you got one last observation for us? Yeah, let's let's deal with the man who did the great dog act, <laughs> Doeg um, the Edomite. I'm calling this Doeg the Edomite and the anti-ban. Um, now, uh, let me tell you first of all a little bit about, or no, I'm going to let David tell you a little about Doeg the Edomite. Um, so I just thought I'd read to you a little bit from Psalm 52, which is what David wrote when he was reflecting upon Doeg the dog act. Um, and I'll read to you verses 1 to 4. He says, Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? He says sarcastically. Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God, you who practice deceit? 
Your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. I mean, that is... Uh, David didn't like Doeg um, and, uh, and had no respect for him. I think we get a couple of indications here about what, why Doeg did what he did, for starters. Um, we're, we're told in verse 7 of Psalm 52 that it was actually that he trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. In other words, that he heard Saul saying to others, look, you know, I've given you all of these things. David hasn't given it to you, yet you're not rewarding me with, with your loyalty. Doeg goes, all right, here's an opportunity to make some money. I'm going to dob Ahimelech in. And when he does, he is, just, he is lying. Now, he isn't lying that David went there and that Ahimelech helped him, but he knew very, very well that Ahimelech had not allied with David against mm. Saul, That he was because he heard it, he saw it all, and he knew exactly why Ahimelech did what he did and that it was all very innocent. But he thought, here's an opportunity for a paycheck and so, and so um, sells Ahimelech out. Um, but that's actually not what I really want to talk about when it comes to Doeg the Edomite. Um, here's a bit of a clue when you're reading the scriptures. When you ever have come across something where uh, something is repeated a number of times and it almost seems like it's not necessary, it's a bit of a trigger to say we're meant to notice something here. And so if you actually go to um, 1 Samuel 22, which I know you, you can't because you're listening and you're walking and exercising and doing all of that, but if you go to... Um, when he describes about um, Doeg, we're told every time except for one when Doeg's mentioned, it's his full name. It's Doeg the Edomite and Doeg the Edomite was there and Doeg the Edomite did this and Doeg the Edomite did that. Um, it doesn't just, first of all, which you might normally do in introducing a character, say Doeg the Edomite was there and then every time after that just call him Doeg. So what are we being reminded? Well, the Edomites. That I mean, is an Edomite. <laughs> <laughs> we learnt about them in Malachi yeah. Last year. Yeah, that's right. And we learned back then um, in Malachi, and we actually know from the whole of the Bible that in a sense the Edomites were the most historically, if you trace it all the way back, they were the original enemies of Israel. They were the descendants of Israel, which is what Jacob was renamed. Jacob's brother Esau, that became Edom, was also called Edom, and the Edomites were his descendants. And the Edomites always throughout the Old Testament hated Israel. They were never allied to Israel, where some others, even the ones we read about in this account, like Moab, um, uh, were sometimes okay, but not the Edomites. And so we've got this guy called Doeg, who's the Edomite, and what was his job? He was the chief shepherd of Saul, for Saul. And it's an interesting counterpoint, isn't it, to, to David as being this shepherd who is at the moment in a cave, uh, shepherding the outcasts of Israel mm. and you've got Doeg, Saul's shepherd who is an Edomite and what's Doeg do? Well he slaughters all the priests mm. of, of the Lord. Now now well, I've called it Doeg the Edomite and the anti-ban because um, what Doeg does there you'll notice that it, it's it's you know, awful pun but overkill men, women, children, infants, um, cattle, sheep, donkeys, all of those sorts of things. Now, that sort of phrasing should also ring a bell because that happens, you'll know then, that sometimes Joshua was commanded to do that um, in the conquest of the nations. Um, and, and partly that was because what the nations had done was so abhorrent 
that they needed this almost extreme form. It was called being devoted to the ban, which was a holy cleansing of wickedness. And it was the, almost the ultimate in this worldly judgment mm-hmm. that, that God would do. And, and so it was what God called someone else to do. It happened to be King Saul, and Saul was meant to do exactly that to the Amalekites. Again, another ancient enemy of Israel who, if they had their way, would have slaughtered Israel before they ever got to the promised land. And so now Saul is meant to, was meant to be God's agent to actually judge the Amalekites, but, but he doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why the kingdom gets taken from him. Because Samuel goes up to him and says, what's this bleeding of sheep in my ears? I can still hear that you haven't followed through. And so now you come through to this chapter and and the contrast, it should stun us, that the one who wasn't prepared to do it to Israel's enemies is prepared to kill every man, woman, child, devote every cattle, sheep and donkey of a town of priests of the Lord. And it is like the, the, this, the, the king, like the nations, uses one of Israel's greatest enemies, an Edomite, to slaughter the priests of the Lord. He has become absolutely like the nations. In fact, not just like them, worse than them. Yeah, and that really, I think that's probably the point that we want to start wrapping up mm. because we've come full circle there as we saw in that structure that we've seen the contrast between David and the nations Mm. and that David even in all of his imperfections was still the innocent man that was in the way of Saul who was hell-bent on destruction that's right David is like building in that cave while Saul is destroying Um, and when we think of that cave it's really just that tiny glimpse of the of the kingdom and the glory and the beauty of that kingdom that Jesus himself is building. A, a loving saviour growing a people around him that need him and he shepherds and cares for them. So uh, actually what I thought I'd, I'd love to do to sort of finish is we've been talking about the things, that, aspects of the scriptures in the sense that we didn't get to cover on Sunday. Here's a song I would have loved us to have sung. I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, but I am going to read it to you uh, that, um, that really reflects upon the wonderful truth of, of reflecting upon being one of Jesus' people who had him suffer for us. And, um, and those who love old hymns will know this one. It's called My Song is Love Unknown. Let me, and if you don't know it, have a listen to these words. My song is love unknown, my Saviour's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? He came from his blessed throne, salvation to bestow. But men made strange, and none the longed-for Christ would know. But, oh, my friend, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. Sometimes they strew his way and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day hosannas to their king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. They rise and needs will have my dear Lord made away. A murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. Yet cheerful he to suffering goes, that he his foes from thence might free. Here might I stay and sing, no story so divine, never was love, dear king, never was grief like thine. This is my friend, in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. What a powerful and striking image. 
in whose sweet praise in all my days could gladly spend. We've really been on a dark journey today. There's been so much pain, so much hardship and so much wickedness in the text that we've seen. And yet it's amazing that God uses all of these things and more to create a beautiful kingdom that will never perish, spoil or fade. Indeed. Amen to that. Well, I've been Mandy, you've been Dave. I've been Dave. And this is Sermon Seasonings, Episode 3. And we'll see you next week.